We're going to be in Luke chapter 22 this morning, so you can turn uh, with me there. Um, if you don't have a, a Bible with you, the, the, the screen behind me will have those, um, those Bible references that we're going to look through this morning. We have been in the Gospel of Luke since Advent of 2021, since Christmas of 2021. And, uh, and essentially, uh, we have taken some breaks in, in that time, but I, I think today is our 36th week uh, studying the Gospel of, of Luke together. And we're nearing the end. There's only three chapters left. Um, we, uh, after today, there, there is five messages over the course of four weeks. One of those messages will be on Good Friday. And, uh, and so we're, we're nearing the end. And you'll notice today we're going to slow down a little bit. We have been taking large chunks of Luke at a time, sometimes over a chapter a week. This week, we're just going to look at 23 verses um, at the beginning of chapter 22. And on Jesus' time frame, where we end today, uh, Jesus is roughly 17 hours away from his last breath. On our calendar, it's 26 days until Good Friday, okay? Uh, so just keep that in mind as, as we press on. So these are the, the final hours of Jesus' life, and we're going to slow down, and we're going to uh, really examine what he shows us about himself and his character and his desires. And um, It's not just him, though. It's, it's the people that surround him. It's these religious leaders and these, these, these 12 disciples that are following him that, that you really get to see uh, their hearts uh, on display. And so um, if I could uh, give you an outline of where we're headed this morning, we're going to see three things. First... We're going to look at the, these chief priests and scribes um, and, and the desires that are, that are driving them. Uh, driving, it's going to drive them ultimately um, uh, because of their fear. It will drive them ultimately to violence. Then we're going to look at one of the 12, a guy named Judas, and uh, the desires of his heart and what's driving him that will uh, ultimately result in the betrayal of Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to look at Jesus himself and, and, and look at the question, what's his desire uh, from the passage? Um, and ultimately, uh, what is at the, at the root of that? And, and what we're essentially talking about this morning is, is the question of worship. What did these individuals worship? And, and the, the truth is, is that every human being is a worshiper. Every single human being is a worshiper. All of us are living our lives uh, reaching out to something to save us, something or someone that will either save us or fulfill us, or, 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 or be everything that we need it to be. And, and, and you, if you were to find the most irreligious, uh, atheistic person on the planet, if you will examine their motives and, and what they get out of bed for in the morning, you will see that they too are a worshiper of something. We're all worshipers at the bottom. And, and how you know what it is that you worship is by looking at your desires and your fears. Those things on the super the surface level of your life, if you examine what it is that you want more than anything, what it is that you're afraid of more than anything, and if you follow that down to the, to the root of that in your heart, you, you find that there is that which you worship. So what is it that these, these scribes and, and, uh, and, and religious leaders worship? What is it that Judas worships? What does Jesus worship? What's on display here this morning? And so uh, we're going to begin with those religious leaders uh, so if you will, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verses 1 and 2. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death 
for they feared the people. Now, uh, Luke uh, puts this, this story, situates what's about to happen um, along with this, this religious uh, occasion called uh, the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. Now, originally, those were two different uh, events that the Jewish people celebrated. The first one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that commemorated when uh, God told the, the children of Israel to, to, to be ready to have uh, all their stuff ready to go and packed up and they were to eat bread in haste because when the hour came for them to depart from Egypt, they were to, to, not, to not waste any time. They were to, to go. This, this is a reminder of this powerful event in Israel's history of how God delivered them from slavery. The second uh, event is that of Passover. The thing that secured their freedom uh, from uh, slavery in Egypt was this tenth and final plague that God poured out on Egypt, the plague of the firstborn son, where God sent uh, the, his, 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 his angel over the, the, the city or over uh, Egypt and homes that had uh, the blood of an innocent lamb painted over the doorposts, they were covered under the blood of the lamb. And the children, uh, the firstborn son in that house was under that covering and protection. However, um, houses that didn't have that blood painted on the doorpost, the angel visited that home and took the life of the firstborn son within. It was after that plague that the Pharaoh of Egypt says, now you can go. And so the Israelites left, uh, and, and they left behind slavery in Egypt. And so every year after that, the Israelites were called to remember those two events. Now, by the time of Jesus' day, those two events really had been merged into one event, one holiday. Another thing that's important to, to understand about the context of, of what Luke is saying, um, remember from, from previous weeks, Jesus foretold about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And sure enough, some 35, 40 years after Jesus said that, uh, Jerusalem was um, attacked by the, a, a Roman uh, army that surrounded it, um, uh, defeated those who were, uh, were, were holding out within, and uh, destroyed the temple completely. That wasn't the first time that happened. It actually happened before, some 400 years before Jesus, when the Babylonians came, they conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and they carried off most of its citizens back to Babylon. Now, over the course of that 400 years, those Jewish peoples who, who were, were taken away in exile, they began to spread out uh, across the, the then known world. So that by the time of Jesus, we read in Acts 2, by the time of Jesus, there were pilgrims who were coming to Passover, filling up the city of Jerusalem, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. And these people were coming from places like modern-day Iraq or Iran, modern-day Greece or Turkey, modern-day you know, Egypt and North Africa, like literally hundreds of thousands of people flooding into this city in order to celebrate this really, really important event in the life of the Jewish people, Okay. So Luke is, is situating everything that's going to happen, Jesus' final hours during, uh, during this event. The second thing we, we, see, uh, we see here, it says, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Uh, David talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the chief priests, those were a group of people called Sadducees. The scribes were a group of people called Pharisees. These were political and religious opponents, and yet they served together as part of a group called the Sanhedrin, um, it was a governing Jewish body underneath the authority of Rome. And, uh, and, and, and again, those are political religious opponents. And what's interesting about this is that they were able to unite across the aisle, so to speak, because of one thing, their hatred of Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it, how hatred can unify people? And you see that, you know, in, 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 shortly after World War I, right? With Germany, there's 
if you, if you know your history, there was this, this, uh, lots of factions and lots of divisions within that country. And what it took to unify that country was hate for a people group. Right? Hate unifies people. However, sacrificial love can also unify people. And we'll get to that this morning. So um, here's this, this group of, of religious leaders, and they want to destroy Jesus. They're, they're going to kill him. And, and, and the real question of why, what is the motive that is driving them? And we see a hint of it here. It says, and they feared the people. Now, there's two layers to this. The superficial layer is uh, Jesus was surrounded by crowds. If you'll remember, he's coming into the city from the Mount of Olives every morning. People are waking up early. They're going to listen to Jesus teach and sit at his feet, and they're hanging on his every word. So he's surrounded by these crowds, right? And so here's these religious leaders, and they want to arrest Jesus. They want to lay hands on him. They want to, to haul him off. They want to get him um, uh, off the scene and out of the picture. But they know that if they were to lay hands on him in public on the Temple Mount, there would be a crowd of people that would rise up against them. So they feared the people. But Jesus, throughout Luke, he shows that there's a different kind of fear that's going on within the hearts of these religious leaders. There's, there's, there's a fear beneath the surface that's really encapsulated in what the Bible calls fear of man. Fear of man. There's, there, there are those individuals who look at the world around them, and they desire to be esteemed by the world. They, de they desire to be put on a pedestal. They desire uh, to be appreciated and loved by the people around them, uh, such to the point they live their lives based on the approval of, one, of other people. The flip side of that coin, though, is once you have the approval of people, you fear losing the approval of people. You fear rejection. This is what was going on in, inside the heart of, uh, of these religious leaders that ultimately leads them to want to take violent action. So you see this, um, uh, especially in the latter part of, uh, of Luke. Uh, in Luke 10, you see a, a lawyer there who, uh, he asked Jesus a question in order to justify himself before people. Uh, you see it in Luke 14, uh, when, when Jesus confronts these individuals who are jockeying for positions of honor at a banquet around a table. Um, you see it in, uh, in Luke 18, where Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee who goes into the temple and he prays this really loud, obnoxious prayer somewhere along the lines of, thank you, God, that I am not like this sinner here, as he compares himself to a tax collector. And then you see it quite plainly in Luke 20, where Jesus puts it this way, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts and for pretense make long prayers. Jesus is highlighting the fact that here's a group of people that is elevating themselves and desires to be glorified. They desire to be approved of by others, to looked up upon. And they fear losing the power that they have because of that esteem so much so that they're willing to kill. And here's the reality. If we're all worshipers, what happens when our gods are attacked? And what lengths will we go to to defend that which we, we worship? You see, on the surface level of, of, these, uh, of these religious leaders, there is this desire and, and, and this, this living life for the approval of other people. What will happen when that's taken away? And the end result is violence. Now, before we look at these, these religious leaders and say, thank you, God, that I am not like these sinners, what if we do some self-examination? And what if we ask the question, 
If you were to look the history of your life and your decision-making, how many of your decisions have been about winning the approval of other people? How many of your decisions have been about fear of losing the approval of other people? Let me ask you some questions here. What happens when you feel slighted? What happens when you feel disrespected? What happens when you feel overlooked by coworkers or fellow travelers on the freeway? What happens when you're passed over by bosses for promotion? What happens when a friend cancels on you in order to make time for another friend? What happens when you're ignored by a host of a dinner party? What happens when we feel rejected on some level by someone we think is important? What goes on? What's, what is stirred up in our hearts? Let me put a question to you another way. What's more offensive to you when your name is slandered or when Jesus' name is slandered? If you, if you were to plot out the course of your life and what, what you get out of bed for in the morning, if we were to identify that which you worship, would you see that there is an idol of fear of, of losing the approval of other people? There's an idol of desire of gaining the approval around you. You know, Jesus is, is pretty clear about this. He says that those who put themselves first get to go last. Those who are willing to take a back seat, however, he promotes. He talks about things like if you deny Jesus before men, he denies you before the Father. When you look at your life, whose glory and whose name are you living for? Well, let's look at Judas. Verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So uh, the, the, the religious leaders need an opportunity. They need an opportunity when Jesus is not surrounded by people who would protect him. They need an opportunity when Jesus is not surrounded by a crowd. And Judas is going to provide them with that opportunity. Now, before we look at the heart of Judas and what it is that he desires and what it is that at bottom he worships, we have to deal with this, this statement. Satan entered Judas. We have to deal with that statement there. The reality is, is that in this story of redemption, there is a God who is set about to, to work to, and, and redeem his people in relationship back to him. But there's not just two parties in the story. There's not just God and there's not just humanity. There's a third party that's at work. There's an enemy. There's an adversary. That's what the word Satan means. It means adversary. And this adversary has follows that we refer to as demons. These are spiritual beings, and they're at work in the world in order to destroy the plans of God, especially regarding redemption. Uh, we see Satan early on in Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes off into the wilderness specifically to be tempted by Satan. Jesus goes to be tempted and face the very same temptations that every single human being has ever faced. He goes to be tempted. Since Adam and Eve, every human being has faced the same kind of temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, and all of us have failed, but not Jesus. And we read this in Hebrews. Uh, it says, For because he himself was suffered when tempted, 
he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, because he didn't succumb to the temptation, when you and I are tempted, we can look to him for help. But he experienced all the temptation that we experienced. Now, what happens in in the desert is he overcomes. Satan is thwarted. He's defeated. He's not successful in getting Jesus to sin. And so the story ends in Luke 4.13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What's the opportune time? Luke 22, verse 3. Satan entered Judas. This is the opportune time. This is when Satan comes back. Now, the, the, the big question is here. Was Judas just a mindless automaton being used by Satan against his will? At the end of the day, could Judas say, the devil made me do it, and I'm not responsible? Notice what, uh, what Jesus says in chapter 22, verses 21 and 22. He says, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. And then check this out. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. That Jesus is betrayed is the sovereign will of God that is happening as God has ordained it to happen. The sovereign will of God. However, Judas is responsible for the choices that he makes. Throughout scripture, we see this tension. God is sovereign, and yet as human beings, we make decisions every single day that we are in fact responsible for. We're responsible. Can Judas say, the devil made me do it? Let's look at the heart of Judas. Uh, John is particularly helpful. Uh, he gives us more information about Judas than Luke does. John six sixty four. Jesus is talking to his disciples. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Later on in the same uh, chapter, it says, uh, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Could you imagine knowing for three years that one of those individuals who was following you around, who was calling you rabbi and smiling at you and, and affirming you and, 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 and just, just, just being one of your guys, that the whole time you knew at some point this guy was going to give you up and betray you. Jesus comes out and says, he did not believe in Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus. He was using Jesus. He saw Jesus as somebody who was rising to the top. And as a result of rising to the top, would hopefully gain in material possessions. And that those who joined him in the ride up the, up the ladder would also benefit from those same things. He just didn't love Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus. He was using Jesus. For what? Again, John is helpful. Chapter 12 um, there is this woman who comes in when Jesus is at a dinner party, and she's got this very expensive jar of perfume, and she breaks open the bottle. Once it's broken open, you can't reseal it, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, and there's this beautiful act of love, but Judas's response to that is, what a waste. She should have given us that bottle. We, we could have sold it and given the money to the poor, but what it says in, uh, in that chapter is uh, verse... Uh, he said this, verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the, fo- bo- the poor, excuse me, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Who else in Scripture is called a thief? Satan. You see, it's not 
that Satan and Judas are, 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 are two different types of individuals. It's in fact, they have so much in common with one another. Jesus uh, helps us even more. He says, no servant, this is Luke 10, or 16, 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what's evidence is that, that, that Judas's desire was for money. His God was money. And according to what Jesus says here, that means since he loved money, he hates Jesus. And who else hates Jesus? See, it's not that Judas was a mindless automaton being used against his will. He can't, at the end of the day, say, the devil made me do it. It's not that he's a pawn of Satan. It's not that he's some helpless mark. It's not that he's been, you know, embodied by Satan and he can't control what's going on. I mean, think about it this way. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. Can you resist the Spirit? You can't. You can resist the Spirit. And we often do resist the Spirit living. But Satan, the same goes for him. See, he, 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 he's not a mindless pawn. He's not a mark. He's not being used. He is in cooperation. This is a partnership between Judas and Satan. So at the end of the day, he can't say, the devil made me do it. He's fully responsible for that. Now, before we look at Judas and say, wow, I'm really glad I'm not him. What if we were to, to look at that surface level of our hearts and see those desires and see those fears and trace them back down to the root of the matter within our hearts? Sometimes when God is, or when money is worshipped, it's not the primary God that's worshipped, it's the secondary God that supports the primary God that's because money is tied to so many different things in life. It's tied to so many different things. There are all sorts of strings tied to a desire for money. It affords pleasure and entertainment. That might be a God we worship. The pursuit of pleasure and entertainment. Or it affords peace and comfort and ease. That might be a God that we are living our lives for. It, it, it is a decision maker in our choice of spouse. And marriage might be the God that we're living for. It is a decision maker for our choice of careers, and that might be the God that we're living for. It's also attached to our honor and our esteem. You go back to those Pharisees, money was probably a sub-God, you know, a secondary God to, to their desire to, to be approved of by men. Approval and esteem of others. On the other hand, the fear of losing money is attached to safety and security. For some of us, Safety and security is what we worship. We are living in fear of catastrophe happening at, in, at any moment. And so in a desire to control and, and keep ourselves safe and secure, we need to use money in order to make that happen. It's, an, it's involved in our avoidance of pain, of hunger, of weakness, so the fear of losing honor or even losing marriage. Secondary God. And the question is, is if, if you were to examine your heart and you, if you were to examine the, the decisions that you make in life and what gets you out of bed every morning, what would you find in regards to money? What would you regard, find in, in regards to what it is that you worship? How, how, are you, how are you living your life if you were just to look at the decisions that you're making? And again, Jesus is really clear. You can't worship God and money. Like the reality is at some point you have to betray one of them. At some point you have to betray one of them. 
Which one will it be? Well, we've seen what the chief priests and the scribes worshipped, human affirmation. We've seen what Judas worshipped, money. But let's look at what Jesus worshipped. Uh, we're going to skip verses 7 through 13. I'll just summarize them for you. Uh, Jesus uh, divinely orchestrates a series of events that secures for him a place to have a special meal with his disciples. His disciples go and secure that and make the arrangements, and we pick it up in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What does Jesus want? He wants a meal. He wants this particular meal at this particular time with these particular 12 guys before he suffers. He desires this special meal. It goes on, verse 17, and he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus is speaking about his sacrifice. He's come to Jerusalem on mission to give his life at the cross. And so the, the best way, you look at Jesus' desire. His desire is for a meal. You trace that down to his heart. What is it that Jesus worshiped? And maybe the best way to answer the question is by comparing him or contrasting him to the chief priests and the scribes. They wanted to raise their name. They wanted to elevate their status. They wanted the approval of men, and Jesus is going for the disapproval. Jesus is going to be despised and rejected by all, and even at the cross, he's going to experience the rejection of his own father. The exact opposite. When you look at, at Judas, what does Judas want more than anything? Material possession. Jesus, he's already broke. The last thing that you could say Jesus owns, materially speaking, is his body, and he's about to give that away and sacrifice it. The exact opposite of Judas. Why is Jesus doing this? What is the motivation there? The motivation is one thing, his love of the Father. The worship of his heavenly Father, which leads him to submitting to this divine missional plan in order to redeem the world. See, it's not just hate that can unite. Sacrificial love can unite too. And this is what Jesus is talking about around this table. His worship of the Father that will lead him to give up everything in order for us to have everything. Now I want to talk about this meal for a minute. This is ceremony, and ceremony is important to human beings. Human ceremony is important to human beings. Through ceremony what, we, ceremony, what we essentially do is we reach into the, the past and we grab an event and we bring it into the present and we relive it in order for that event to change our hearts and our, change our attitudes and set a course for our future. Okay? Ceremony takes something out of the past, brings it into the present. Now think about a, a, an example of this, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, if you've ever been, Washington, D.C. There's not just a monument there, there's a ceremony that happens there where a soldier walks 21 steps down this black path, faces east and stops for 21 seconds, turns and faces north 
for 21 seconds and then takes 21 steps to repeat the process all over again. 21 is the number for the highest honor that a, that a service member could receive. Now, this monument is about uh, reminding people that there are people who have given their lives and who haven't even received a, a, a burial in return, right? That there are people that, have, that never got to come home, even their bodies are lost. And it's about remembering that. Now, you, you and I, we could be like, hey, just so you know, there are people who died and they didn't get to come home. And you could have mental assent to that. However, when you go and you stand and you watch the tomb guard perform this ceremony, it drives it home to you because the past is brought into the present and you relive it and it affects your heart and it affects your attitude and it changes how you see the future. You think about uh, 9-11, when people stand up and they read the names of the people who died in the towers or the planes or the, the first responders, right? By hearing those names, the past is brought into the present and you re-experience it, you relive it. That's what Jesus is doing with the Passover. That, that's what the Passover meal was, was meant to do. So the head of a household would gather their family together on Passover. And, and generally, it's, it, it's centered around a lamb, a lamb that was purchased a lamb without blemish, a lamb that was slaughtered at sundown and then uh, eaten of as part of the meal. In Luke, the lamb isn't even mentioned because Jesus is going to focus on two other elements, the cup and the bread. But at this, this meal, uh, the, there was four cups. And, and the way that this would, would go is that they shared this first, first cup of wine and then there would be a blessing over the meal and then a, a second cup was shared. And it was at this point that um, the, the story of the Exodus was retold. And then through questions, usually the youngest person at the table would ask questions and say things like, you know, why on this night do we, you know, dip um, uh, these herbs in this, this bitter stuff? And the answer would be, well, this is to remind us of the tears, the agony that was shed because of these people in, in, in slavery. See, all these questions caused the, the past to be brought into the present and relived so that they can use it as fuel for the hope for their, their future. God has saved us in the past. God can save us again. Something out of the past brought into the present. That's what Jesus is doing. Well, uh, Jesus, he shares the first cup. He says a blessing. He shares the second cup, and then he changes it up. It's at this point where he breaks the bread, and he says this. Um, verse, uh, verse 17. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks... Take this and divide it among yourselves. That's the first cup, then the blessing. <clears throat> For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, this is after the second cup, he breaks the bread, he hands it out. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. This is the changeup. Do this in remembrance of me. Now Jesus is saying, this is my body broken. He's, he's taking this ceremonial ritual out of the past, bringing it into the present, and now he's changing it. Because this is the last Passover. The, the reason why the, the, the lamb's not mentioned is because Jesus is the lamb. He's going to, to die, and it's going to be his blood on the cross that covers all of us. There's no need for a lamb anymore. This is the last one. However, this meal is now changed, and it's meant to be a meal that we remember from then on until now and into the future. He changes it up, and he says, this is my body. He uses this bread to symbolize the fact that God took on flesh. God became human. God lived for 33-something years on this planet, all without sin. 
And he spends the last three years of that giving himself away and teaching and preaching and healing and loving on people. And he lives this perfect sinless life. And then he takes that life and he makes it a sacrifice for us. He dies in our place. He conquers sin so that we can be free of it. The wrath of God is assuaged through all of this. And then at the end, he's raised from the dead, but all in bodily form. This is my body, and it's given to you. It's yours, and if you take it, and if you embrace me, then you get to have me. We talked about that last week. Jesus is mine. You get to have me. And in having me, you get everything. Remember me. And then, verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This cup, this, this wine, it symbolizes my blood poured out for you. This blood purchases a new relationship with your creator. This blood establishes the fact that you get to enter in, that you're redeemed, that when the Father looks at you, he sees my righteousness. You get to have a new relationship with the one that made you now. And that's purchased because my blood's poured out for you. Remember me. This morning, we're not going to partake of communion together. And it's not because we did it last week and we'll do it next week. We're not locked into the first and third Sundays of the month. The reason we're not partaking of communion this morning is because I want to challenge you with something. I want to challenge you to partake and remember Jesus in a different way this week. I'll get to that in a second. What does it mean to remember Jesus? If biblical remembrance is reaching into the past, bringing something into the present, reliving it, and allowing it to shape your future, what does it mean to remember Jesus? What does it mean to remember Jesus? Now, the reality is, is, is there might be us, uh, some of us here this morning who say, I remember Jesus through his, his death and resurrection. And that's the climax of the story, to be sure. But we give it more than uh, uh, intellectual assent when we partake of communion, don't we? It's, it's, it's one thing to say, I know that in, in history past, there was a man named Jesus and he died on the cross for my sin and I know that he bodily rose from the grave. It's another thing to take that out of the past and bring it into the present and eat that little bread and drink from that cup. And in that you are, you're reliving. I'm not saying you're re-crucifying, but you're reliving what it is that he did for you, and you allow that to change your heart and to change your attitude, and you allow it to change your identity and set a new course for your future. Every time we partake of communion. But I think the reality is, is for a lot of us as Christians, we focus on the death, and we remember that, and we focus on the resurrection, and we remember that, but we've forgotten the life. There was a life that lived before that. A holy, righteous, perfect life, and by the Spirit, that the power of the Spirit living in us, we are meant to emulate that life. We're meant to follow in the past steps, the, the footsteps of, of that life. We're meant to live like Jesus lived. When Jesus says, remember me, he's not just talking about his death. He is, but not just. He's, he's not just talking about his resurrection. He is, but not just. He's also talking about his life. Remember my life. And how do you remember the life of Jesus? You take it out of the past, you bring it into the present, and you live like Jesus lived. Your life becomes a ceremony of remembering Jesus to the world around you. 
Remember Jesus to the world around you. Think about the people in your life that you would describe as lost. Now, I, I like the word adrift. People in your life that are adrift, they're, they're not moored to anything. They're not anchored to anything. They think they are. They have these false gods. They have these things that they're giving their lives to and they're getting out of bed for in the morning and ultimately in the end, you know it's not solid or sturdy and it's going to, it's going to, to vanish one day on them. They're not moored or anchored to anything. They're, they're, they're adrift. Think about those people in your life. Now ask the question of yourself, how is it that they will be found? How is it that they will be anchored to Jesus? What will it take for that to happen? Do you think some preacher on a street corner is going to make that happen? Do you think some argument over a water cooler regarding seven-day creation is going to make that happen? Do, do you think that putting a, a piece of literature in their hand with all sorts of great facts uh, on it about Jesus, you think that's going to, to, to be the catalyst for change in them? Do you think that bringing them to a place like this on a Sunday morning to hear from somebody like me is going to be the, be the thing that causes them to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ? Like, if you're here this morning and you, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I'm glad that you're here. But I think you and I would, would probably both admit you don't know me from Adam, and most of my words have had little or no effect on you because we don't have a relationship. Where is it that people will begin that relationship with Jesus? See, my money is on the table. Those people, those friends, those family members, those neighbors, those people in your life, what they need is to see a relationship with Jesus on display. What they need is a table to gather around with you, to break bread with you for you to remember Jesus to them around the table I'll be honest with you I can't remember the last time that somebody began a relationship with Jesus Christ because of something I said on a Sunday morning maybe that means that you uh, should look for my replacement but my money is, is on the table I, I think it's I'm not saying Jesus or people can't come to, to, to saving faith through all those other means. But I think by and large, for people in our context and in our culture, a relationship with Jesus begins in your and my relationship with Jesus. As we model a life and through that remember Jesus to them. And a great tool for that is the table. Think about food in the book of Luke. I think it's right and appropriate as we come to the end of Luke and we're looking at this last meal that they shared together to look back on the, the, the place of food in Luke and table fellowship. And you begin with Jesus' birth and he's born and he's wrapped in rags and he's placed in what? Okay, next week we start Luke all over again. What is he placed in? feeding trough. A feeding trough. It's as if the God of the universe is saying, this is my son and his body is true food and his blood is true drink and if you will take him, your hunger will be ultimately satisfied. As Jesus is served up to us. 
And, and then it launches in. You, you get into his ministry and, and, and you see his, his life on display. Luke uh, 7, uh, there was a meal where, uh, again, that woman comes in and she, she wastes that perfume on him, on him and, and, and cries on his feet. And, and instead of rejecting her like the religious leaders wanted him to do, he, he embraces her, he loves her, and he commends her great love for him. A woman of the street, a woman who had a, a bad reputation, and it was around a table where the God of the universe accepts and loves her. It's in uh, the, the same chapter that Jesus responds to accusations where he's called a, 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 a drunkard and um, a, 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 a glutton. A glutton and a drunkard. Now, Jesus wasn't a glutton and a drunkard, but he got that reputation. Why? Because he's always eating with people. In fact, one commentator says, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. There's some people that argue that, that the real reason Jesus was ultimately executed is because of the type of people that he ate with. Because around tables, he rejected the religiosity of certain people, and he accepted and embraced the poor, the powerless, the sinners, the prostitutes, and the tax collectors. Because of who he ate with. You look... Luke 9, Jesus, he bountifully provides food for 5,000 people, meeting basic needs. Luke 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to minister, and he gives special instructions about how to the, the receive their food and drink for the people that take them in, sharing meals with those people who take them in. Uh, later in, in Luke uh, 10, we see uh, Martha and Mary, and he becomes this He's, he's the guest of Martha and Mary, but then things change and becomes like this gracious host who's actually feeding them by teaching them. Uh, Luke 14, Jesus is invited to a religious leader's house where he, he watches as people are, are, are jockeying for position around the, the table for positions of honor, and he confronts that. And he says, don't try to honor yourself, but try to humble yourself. Give more honor to other people. He also tells a, a parable in that, in that same uh, passage where he talks about the, the, the reality that his followers shouldn't be people who put on really nice banquets in order to be reciprocated with really nice banquets. Instead, they should go out and find people that can't pay them back, uh, who, quote, are, um, let's see, poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Those are the people you extend the invitation to. In Luke 16, he tells a story about a rich man and Lazarus, and it's a rich man who's dining at a table while Lazarus is languishing, and it's this attitude which comes out in the eating and drinking, which ultimately condemns the rich man. Then Luke 19, he invites himself to Zacchaeus' home. It's there where he makes this profound statement, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost around a meal. And then he shares this meal with his disciples, where he, he takes something out of the past and brings it into the present, and then he retranslates it to, to give us hope for the future. Do you notice he says um, that he's not going to eat this meal again until the kingdom of heaven? And yet he instructs us to have it over and over again. But, but that doesn't mean he didn't eat, because after he was, he was resurrected, he broke bread with people in Emmaus, and he appears to his disciples, and he, and he asks for a snack because he's hungry. See, you see this theme of food throughout. You see, it's a tool that Jesus used in order to connect to people, to put his life on display. The table was a place where anybody could come and meet with Jesus and, and find in him the rest and the salvation and the, the love 
that they so desperately needed. It's around a table. And so Jesus says to you and I this morning, he says, remember me. Do we say, yes, I remember your, your death. Yes, I remember your resurrection. But we stop there. Are we not supposed to remember his life? And that means taking his life and bringing into the present, producing it, following it, like seeing his life as an example to pattern our own life after. To live like Jesus. That's how we remember Jesus to the world around us. So the challenge is this. This week, instead of us partaking of communion in this gathering, I would encourage you to gather around a table. And whether that's you accepting an invitation or that it's you extending an invitation, but gather around a table and eat with the kind of people that Jesus would eat. And remember Jesus in that context to those people. Remember Jesus to those people. That's the challenge. Now, you'll notice the baptism tank behind me as well. Um, uh, we, we found out this morning that the young man who's going to come forward this hour to be baptized um, got pretty ill and, uh, and is not able to be baptized this morning. And so um, we'll fill the tank again for him. Um, but with permission, he's uh, allowed me to share just a little bit. Um, this young man, he didn't uh, come to faith, and it was recently. He didn't come to faith by coming here and hearing me preach. Um, his, his first steps uh, in faith was he came here and he saw a friend of his get baptized. Do, do, do you understand that? The power of baptism and the message that that, that preaches, is, it, it might be better than any sermon I've ever done. He saw baptism. And then what happened next is he was invited to a home for dinner. And then another one, and then another one. And then it was ice cream. What I understand, he's consumed a lot of ice cream around Christian fellowship. But you see, it's by sitting around people who had a connection to Jesus where his connection to Jesus began. It was around a table. Now, it's full. Uh, and, and you might be here this morning, and you might have never been baptized. And so I'm going to put it out there like we always do. If you would say this morning, I remember Jesus' death. I have embraced that. I know he died for me. I know that, that his death saved me from sin. And I remember his resurrection, and his resurrection means I get to have eternal life with him. I remember his death. I remember his resurrection. But let me ask you, have you remembered his life? And what I mean by remembering isn't just that you know about it up here, but that you've taken his life and you've brought it into the present and you're attempting to live his life out and remember Jesus to the world around you. Jesus was baptized. And he did it not because he needed to or because he had to. He did it in order to fulfill all obedience, and he did it in order to set an example for us to follow. Would we really say, I remember Jesus' death and resurrection, and I followed Jesus, but I've gotten to the baptismal, and that's where it stopped? I followed Jesus no further. And could that be that I followed Jesus no further because I was afraid of what the audience would think of me when I did it? 
I was afraid of what people would think. Fear of me. Just a little bit about the young man who was going to be baptized today. He comes from a Muslim family. And very few of us have any idea what he's about to experience because of his faith in Jesus. And yet he wants to come and be baptized. Despite not just what people think, despite the rejection of people he knows. What's preventing you from being baptized? Will you remember Jesus? Not only to yourself, but remember Jesus to us. See, that's, that's what happens. That through ceremony, you remember Jesus to those around you. And the people that, that see this are reminded of their own baptism. They're reminded of those, those first days of following Jesus themselves. And there's encouragement and there's joy and there's hope and there's all sorts of things that are involved in that. But remembering Jesus to one another. If you're here this morning and you would like to be baptized, you can walk out those doors in a minute after I pray. I have clothes for you to change into, a place for you to change into them. We can come in and, and you can be baptized today. Now, I always want to say this. Baptism doesn't save you. Don't you know that? Baptism does not save you. And you wake up tomorrow morning, God's not going to love you anymore tomorrow than he did today after you are baptized. This isn't about God's love for you. He's already demonstrated his love for you. This is about your love for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the ways that you draw our attention to what's going on inside. You draw our attention to the the surface, surface level of, of fruit that's coming out of our lives in order to show us what's going on deep down inside. And the reality is, is that we want to worship you alone. We want you to sit on the throne of our lives. And yet uh, we, we realize that from moment to moment that can change. Um, when we desire and when we fear, um, we can put a new God on the throne every minute. God, I pray this morning that you would um, show us what we've been putting our trust in and show us the faultiness of that God. Anchor us to yourself. Anchor us to your love. Anchor us to um, your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for doing all the work that's necessary for us to be acceptable by God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us, that we would not reject you, that we would not uh, refuse to allow you to lead in our lives. And Holy Spirit, more than anything, I pray that you would empower us to live like Jesus lived so that we can remember Jesus to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name.